Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Javi Kravitz. Welcome everyone, I'm Avi Kravitz and in this episode of the Rappaport Diamond podcast I got to sit down face-to-face with Bruce Cleaver, the former CEO and current co-chairman of De Beers. We touch on all the big topics facing the diamond industry and of course facing De Beers, including traceability and how De Beers is facilitating this through its Tracer blockchain platform, the importance of branding, some observations about lab-grown and De Beers positioning within that market, the company's ongoing negotiations for a new marketing and mining deal with the Botswana government, and Bruce also gives his take on current market conditions. I really appreciated Bruce's openness and candidness in this discussion and gained a lot of insight into how the company is reading the trends and developments affecting our industry. So please enjoy my conversation with Bruce Cleaver. So I'm here with Bruce Cleaver, the co-chairman and I can say former CEO of, of De Beers. Um, thank you so much for joining us and meeting with us, Bruce. A great pleasure to have you and, and talk to you in person for after Thanks, after so long <laughs> speaking on Zoom and Teams and other platforms. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be here in person and it's great to be in Israel. It's actually a long time since I've been in Tel Aviv, so I'm very excited to be here. Right. You're here for the Israel International Diamond Week, the various conferences and trading events taking place, and you've just given your keynote address to the conference, and there was some some interesting themes, I think, that, that we pulled out of your speech. I let you, you went quite hard on lab-grown in terms of the positioning of lab-grown in the market, as well as, of course, everyone's interested in what's happening with the beers in Botswana. And then you also touched on the geopolitical situation and the conflict in Ukraine and how that's affecting the diamond market. And I'd like to, I'd like to start there because when I look back at the beers development and working with the industry, it feels like it's almost been working towards this moment. And you alluded to that in your speech in terms of getting the industry on board with being more transparent and coming to you know better reporting standards, things like that. So maybe let's start with how you see the industry developing in, the, in that conversation. This um, pivots to or this required pivots to transparency and these issues, how it's playing out in today's environment. Sure, Abby. So um, one of the questions that I was asked today and I've touched on is what have I seen in by way of change in the diamond industry in my time as CEO of De Beers? And one of the things I touched on was transparency, not just in my six and a half years, but in all my 17 years at De Beers. And, you know, the diamond industry has gone in that time from being relatively untransparent, I think, to becoming increasingly accepting of the fact that transparency is the name of the game and the future, not just in the diamond industry, is about transparency and all these tools we have now that make transparency such an issue and so immediate for people. So, you know, we you know, with reference to the current conflict in Ukraine and how De Beers might deal with this. This process started for us a long time ago. We started building industry best practice principles as long ago as 2005, 2008, we introduced pipeline integrity. And we started Tracer, which is something I'm very proud of. It's a very, very successful, fully distributed ledger blockchain, which starts its source in 2017, not because we could possibly see a conflict coming, because we obviously couldn't, but because we could see that as provenance became more of an issue as transparency became more of an issue, we would need to be able to tell the story better. So, you know, I'm very comfortable that as this year goes on, we'll be able to put all of the De Beers production to be about a certain size on the blockchain. And we're loading up at least 100, maybe 120,000 diamonds a site now. So it's done very well at that level. I also said in the interview that as far as I was concerned, I've always thought that in due course, Tracer could be an industry solution. I think some of the things De Beers 
does do tend to work for the whole industry rather than just ourselves, but it was important we got the De Beers goods on first. So I'm certainly open to working beyond that point to make it an industry solution. And of course, as you touched on the kind of geopolitical things going on in Ukraine has made this a much more urgent issue. But to me, it's actually just an acceleration of what was a trend that I think, you know, we have thought a lot about and I think has been coming along in the diamond industry for years mm-hmm. and, and you've been writing about these happens for years too. Right. Just yeah. in terms of Tracer, and, and, and we'll get back to those other trends, but in terms of Tracer, if it's open to the industry, how do retailers leverage Tracer? Because it's fine to get all the goods in the midstream onto the platform, but ultimately it's a tool to show provenance, to enable better storytelling. So yeah. how can a retailer how does the retail sector that's a great question I think the ultimate issue here is exactly as you say is what does this mean for a consumer for an end consumer for a customer who buys the diamond in a retail store and why is it meaningful for them now we know that something like 36% of women and nearly 40% of all Gen Z purchases are already starting to ask this question That's a big change, I think, to five years ago. So actually, we need to make this work at a retail level for all kinds of reasons. I think step one was to get the system working. Step two is to get the the midstream participating because that's a complex value chain and it's important to get all parts of that on it. But I think for us, the next step is how do we work with retailers to enable richer and better storytelling in a way that is seamless not clunky and so on and ultimately the dream of course is to be able to say i can tell you that that particular diamond you're busy buying did the following good in the following country and built a school or built a hospital and so on we've already got sixty thousand diamonds on polished diamonds on tracer and i think you'll expect to see that more so i fully agree with you this is not only a b2b solution this needs to ultimately be a value across the value chain solution and we certainly are going to be working with retailers on that right one thing I've been thinking about, again, as, as I've kind of observed the journey that De Beers has been on and taken the industry on, is that initially when the company started talking about these issues, there was kind of a focus on branding. You know, De Beers introduced Forevermark around the same time in the early 2000s. And we're not sharing that conversation as strongly as we did back then today. It's just, it's all about, you know, just prove your provenance and, and let's, let's trace those diamonds. But for me, it seems very strongly to be a branding play. And and so firstly, why aren't we hearing more about branding in this context of the market environment that we're experiencing? Because surely that's where the opportunity lies. Yeah, I agree with that. And I've said consistently, we see big opportunities in brands. And so there's no less focus on that. I suppose the real issue, though, is given the urgency of what's been going on in Ukraine, the urgency has been on making sure the system works and making sure Mm. the tech works, which I'm very comfortable now. And we're working with all kinds of industry players now in order to, you know, get as many people as we can on it. But I totally agree with you. And we haven't lost focus on this point. I mean, ultimately, there is a brand premium here for brands who do this correctly. And obviously, we're a brand as De Beers, and we think a lot about that. So I'm glad you raised it. I don't want people to think we're less focused on the brands. I just think there's only so much you can do in a day. And we've had to deal with the really urgency of the last probably year. And we, you know, we've made amazing progress. And the tech with Tracer and onboarding the midstream is not going to stop there. Mm. So how, how does the De Beers brand is tapping into Tracer's technology in order to enable the story that De Beers and Forevermark is able to That's tell? Right. So there are various pieces of work underway already about how do we tell that story better connected to the brand, connected mm. to Forevermark, Code of Origin is something we've spoken about. And all these things are going to coalesce around Tracer, which is really just the platform that will give you the building blocks to deliver the brand. So right. you, you know, I'm glad you raised 
existed. I mean, these are fundamental parts right. of our future. But then looking at the industry as a whole, back in the 2008, let's say, the idea put forth was that the industry is going to see more branding. I wonder if that has transpired to that same extent, and is that where the industry is moving? Similar, you know, the, the famous example is the watch industry that you see very <laughs> few unbranded watches. And so do you still see that same path that the diamond industry is Yeah, I think we we do. And I think one of the things that has characterized the last 10 years has been brands. I think we have no doubt that brands sell at a premium to generic. And whether that's the designs, whether that's the whole story that the brands tell, or whether it's a combination of those, we would expect that to continue. And the research tells us all along that not just in the diamond world, people will pay a premium for brands, provided the value of the brands, the values of the brands, are the same as the values of the purchaser. And like I said, that's why I think Trace is a building block. It's not the nirvana of all of this. It's the platform on which you can start to deliver and prove to people the whole story along the chain and how you build the brand is actually valid, demonstrable, uh, and honest. Mm. Where does that leave the smaller independence dealer, let's say, in the market? You know, we hear in Israel, it's very much a trading center. Yeah. And when we speak about provenance on a wider scale in front of, you know, an audience of these independent dealers, and I think also at a retail level where you have independent jewelers that maybe don't have that same maybe awareness is the word or just scale or scale or budget frankly to implement these programs how how are they going to be affected by this move this quite significant move within the industry that particularly if the new measures the sanctions measures Mm. that the g7 is talking about come into play which will require a proof of origin in some form you know how, yeah, how, can, how it, does the midstream get affected it's a complex that? question i guess the first part is more of a kind of a defensive part which is prove that the goods are where you say they came from mm-hmm. and so that's kind of step one just to make sure that the goods that we have and all the goods we put on the platform i guess in time can make their way through the value chain and then there's a second question is how do people think about potentially monetizing that a little bit more now obviously some of our models with things like forevermark have always been to try and support independents who might be really really good businesses but don't really have the scale to build a brand for themselves. So how we evolve that in the context of Forevermark's journey and the context of using Tracer as an underlying platform, I think will be part of that answer. And I, I mean, I don't know the answer to this question, Abby, but my guess is even in trading of goods, there will come a time when provenance goods sell for more than non-provenance goods. Mm. Now that's not to say that's the same as branded goods and there is a different debate there. Right. But obviously independent dealers are you know, less involved, I guess, in creation of brands and so on than retailers. And of course, whether I like it or not, investing in a brand is expensive. It doesn't come for nothing. We spend a lot of money on building the De Beers brand and all our partners and retailers who do the same do as well. These are not trivial exercises. Mm. So I think that's also got to evolve as we go along. But I kind of like to think of it as two parts. First part is provenance, which is, I think, step one of being in the game and probably being ahead in the game. And the second part is, on top of that, what do the brands do with with provenance and their own brand stories and their own designs and their own things that they do to build their own brands. Right. And, and I think one realization that the industry is coming to is that you don't have to be a big name brand to be a brand. Every business has, no, their, quite, has their name to protect. That's quite brand. correct. So we have some tremendously good, smaller, independent customers who are great businesses and in their towns are tremendous brands. So yeah, you, you don't have to be in 600 doors to be a brand. Right. But you have to do something different and you have to have your customer trust you. Right, and yeah. you have to add value, yeah. um, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to touch on Lab Grow. Mm. And the, your, your discussion this morning was quite extensive in how you see Lab Grow being positioned in the market at the moment. We know that there's been a decline in value of Lab Grow supply as supply has gone up and technology has improved. 
and the cost has come down. And so the value proposition of LabGrown has declined. De Beers famously launched its Lightbox brand, a LabGrown brand, with an $800 per carat price point. And that was controversial on, I think, particularly in the LabGrown market because they didn't want to limit their pricing to a set and they kept the natural diamond industry model. Now that we've seen this devaluation of LabGrown, how does Lightbox pricing fit into that? Is LabGrown, is Lightbox almost overvalued now as a, at an $800 per carat price point? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think, I mean, as you know, the key for me here has always been price. And we have always felt as an organization that a lab grown is a perfectly legitimate category, as you know, and we participate in it. But it's all about price because it's a fashion piece and not a luxury piece. And that's why two carrots should cost double what a one carat costs because it costs you twice as long to grow it in a mm-hmm. reactor. Not the differentials you get in natural diamond pricing of a one to a two character, which is a rarity driven thing. So that's I think the evidence is starting to show that that thesis is correct. You know, I spoke earlier today about, for example, you're seeing some retailers saying, I'll give you a two-carat lab ground for free if you buy a two-carat natural. You wouldn't have seen that two or three years ago. So I think the trend for prices to come down as production goes up will continue. And as production goes up, of course, cost of production goes down because a lot of these producers are volume businesses. So the more volume you produce, the more cost you can take out. Now, not all lab-grown diamonds are equal, as we know. And there are better quality and less good qualities. And there's HPHTs and there's CBD and so on and we've always been at the end in Lightbox in producing the best quality CVD but at prices that we think are prices where consumers will see this as fashion and not luxury you know when you ask me the question is have we dropped lab grown prices at Lightbox in a sense of course we have because we launched this in 2018 that's mm. six years ago and inflation has been called at 25-30% since then and we haven't increased price at all so in some senses you know when people ask me this question I think to them if you look at the, the, the real price of a Lightbox one character today compared to when we launched it actually has come down in real terms because inflation has been so I, I think the equivalent price is probably seven hundred dollars already. Mm-hmm. As to whether we will keep reducing price, I mean we do want to make a margin in this business. We do work very hard on cost and as and when we are able to bring costs down, we will certainly look at our pricing for sure. But you know, we started miles below other people. Most of them are still above us, some have come below us. Mm-hmm. But I do stress not all production processes are the same. So ours is very good, right. very well done, or carbon neutral, done in America, where some of the input costs are probably a bit higher than some other people. Yeah. But for me and the team, it's always about keeping costs down. And that's consistent with an industrial business. If you look at the other side of element six, which is not, not so much for your viewers, but the industrial side of it, that's also a business where cost is in people's mind every minute of every day. Mm. So these are the kind of businesses where you are looking at cutting costs all the time. Right. I think maybe the mistake that we as outside of the De Beers discussion would have made is that $800 per carat price point was a message to the rest of the lab grown industry to adopt that price point. It seems to me that Lightbox is being kind of positioned also as a brand and so there is a premium in Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I don't think think there's any reason why lab grown will be any different than any other fashion product. There'll be brands that sell for more and there'll be brands that sell for less, but they will sell within the band of a category. Mm-hmm. So Lightbox is a brand and it's already been quite a successful brand. It obviously gets a lot more talk than the size of the business. And that's probably good for a brand. So there's all that in the mix as well. And then that's going to come down to what you would expect in any fashion. How good are your designs? What you made earlier? What's your value proposition to a fashion customer compared to somebody else? Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're going to see all lab grown settle at the same price. I think there will be brands and there'll be generic and there'll be successful ones and so on. But I think the trend that I spoke about continues to be prices, even at retail now, are starting to get to prices where it's difficult for a consumer to say it's the same. We're not there yet, but I think there's some evidence that that 
that decline continues. Right. Shifting topic again, and I do want to touch on two more topics, if you don't mind. And the first being Botswana, and there's been a lot of talk about the various negotiations that Beers is engaged with the government of Botswana at the moment. And there are two aspects to that. There's the 10-year sales and marketing agreement that is on the table, and then there's also the mining licenses. A lot's been spoken about. Everyone's read the news about, you know, various comments by different sides, not so much by De Beers, I will mention, about those negotiations but I would like to focus on the mining licenses because that's not really talked Mm. about too Mm. much in these discussions firstly can you explain to us what those mining license involve what is the what is on the table in terms of the mine yeah I'm glad you asked it because it is worth clarifying this as you know I remain very confident that we will come to a deal that both the government of Botswana who are friends and colleagues not just in Debswana and but in De Beers and us are happy with and we've been in business with the Botswana government for more than 50 years and we've renegotiated many things along the way. I'm glad that you raised the point because I think it's lost on people sometimes. There are actually two things being negotiated, as you say. The sales agreements are more regular and they come up for renewal whenever they expire. But what's also being negotiated this time, and it's the first time I can remember when two are being done at once, which I think might explain why it's been a bit more complicated than prior ones, is the mining licenses. So Debswana, the mining company, which is 50-50 owned by De Beers and the government, has four mines, two of which are two of the great mines of the world, Joining and Orapa. Those mines are mined under a license, typical license awarded by the Botswana government under the Minerals Act. To yeah. any player in the mining business who wants to exploit a mineral needs to get a license. The licenses are statutorily limited to 25 years and the current license expires in 2029. But we are in the process of negotiating renewing it now and not in 2029 and we could actually have left it until 2029 and just done the sales. But we and our partners government felt it was responsible to renew it now and the reason is there are expansion projects coming at Botswana and Orapa which will payback, in other words, produce diamonds only after the license has expired, which expires at the end of June 2029. But you need to start making investments now. You know, mining is a long-term business, and to do the next cut at Europa and to go underground at Joining, we've got to start spending quite a lot of money now. So we don't particularly want to spend that money when the license expires with no certainty that it will be renewed, and nor does the Botswana government, because all we all want the same thing, which is production to continue at Debswana. Yeah. So we agreed with them we would do the same now, both these two now, including renegotiating the mining license. That's what's going on, and I think is why this has taken some time, because it's a kind of a one-off. It happens only every yeah. 25 years. The 20, there's no magic in the 25 years. That's what the mining statute in Botswana yeah. requires. So the renewals will be from June 29 until the mid-2040s. And that's, I think, why this is important right. that we do this and, now. and that's one license for all four that's one license for the whole company, Debswana, over all of its mining operations, all four of them. Okay. There's always such a complex structure within within De Beers, given the government's ownership of, it's like the government is awarding itself, or half of itself, a license to operate. Yeah, look, I mean, De Beers, as you know, is a business of partnerships. So wherever you look in the world, we're in joint ventures with people, with governments in Botswana, and Namibia, and with commercial partners in other places. So I'm kind of used to this. But I think the government does a very sound job here, which is to separate the regulatory side of ticking the various requirements in the mining license to get a new license 
against the commercial side, which is really a commercial negotiation between De Beers and the government. Ultimately, it will result in the company Debswana, as we know it now, given a 25-year extension, new license, not an extension, on the terms that we agree. And those are the terms that actually the two shareholders of Debswana agree, which right. is De Beers and government, but government acting in its capacity as a shareholder, right. not as a regulator. Right. But the Botswana government, as you know, do this kind of thing well, and they, the regulations are well adhered to, and the process is well defined, right. so they know that properly. And, and so once those licenses are in place, yeah. then it gives Anglo-American and the government license to invest exactly. in so those once, So once that's programs. renewed, it's hopefully by around mid-year, then all of the investments that we need to now start making mm-hmm. now to get ready to start going underground, to start doing the next cut, will be able to be done now so that in 29 and 30 and 31 mm-hmm. we still continue to get diamond supply. So it's, all, it's actually just prudent of all of us to do this now. Right. So for example, at Juaneng, there's talk now of going underground. Yeah. At, so yeah. that would be the next expansion. Yes, so Juaneng, that's a good example. So Juaneng mm-hmm. is currently a mining cut eight and we are doing a lot of work on the next cut, the open pit cut, which right. is cut, cut nine, nine and that will become the major source of ore in a few years' time. Mm-hmm. So so cut nine, the pre-work's been done, the stripping, because you, know, you strip the waste from the sides of the pit so that when you get there deep enough in the pit, you're ready to start mining the ore. The underground, these are big, long, complex projects. Um, It hasn't gone to the board for approval yet, so I can't tell you exactly, but this can take 10 years between the time you agree to start doing it and when you see your first ore. Now, no one wants a production gap, none of us. So we need to start spending that money now so that when Cut 9 is finished, the underground is ready. Right. Cut 9 is not the major source of diamonds yet, so we've still got to do Cut 9 before we... But it does show you how long-term diamond mining is, or all mining is, yeah. uh, which is obviously very different to people who are traders. But we have to think about spending capital for 10 years before you see your first cent of revenue. I remember when Cut 8 was decided upon, and, and it was it was a big yep. deal for... Well, firstly, Zhuaneng, I don't, I don't know how familiar people are with the specifics of these mines, but Zhuaneng is such an impressive operation and such an important mine as well. Yeah, so Zhuaneng actually is a fantastic place to go. I think you've been there, but it is is a very large, very complex mine. I'm very happy to tell you 99.8% of the people there are that swan, the most fantastic and capable people. And it's a really, really impressive and slick operation. One of the reasons we have so much confidence is that we've got a great team there and they will continue to do this work. But what I think people don't know who don't live in the mining world is how long it takes and how much money you've got to spend right. before you see your first cent. So I can't tell you the cost of the underground because it hasn't been through the board, but I'll give you an example in Venetia where we're going underground and that's in South Africa. That's in our South African operations, so not a part of the Botswana story. We started going underground at Venetia in 2013. We're getting our first ore this year. It's taken 10 years. That is a $2 billion project. So we would have spent the best part of $2 billion before we see one cent of revenue. That is a big undertaking, and that's why mining companies need to be deep-pocketed and need to be able to fund them through a cycle. Right. Very different world to the world that diamond traders and cutters and polishers yeah. live in, but you know, people should remember there's a lot of effort and money that goes into getting this amazing mm. stuff out of there. And that all yeah. is to ensure there's that consistency yeah, of and supply continuity. and continuity. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's a good segue to the current market conditions. And I would like to ask you about the site environment, the supply environment at the moment. You've mentioned in De Beers' um, statements and about your sales that there's been a delay um, among site holders requiring their goods. So this year, it seems that the market, where usually the first quarter of the year is a busy year and we see larger sites, larger volumes of rough coming to the market, that was postponed to later in the year. And so when can we expect that? Um, how is the beers planning and how are site holders, more importantly, planning their supply cycle? When can we expect a larger sites to... to you know, my crystal ball is probably no better than yours. <laughs> and, and as you know, we don't... We don't give out kind of forward information, but I would agree with you. I think 
certainly site one was somewhat atypical in that it was a lower volume than a normal mm. site one. And a normal site one, if there's such a thing as normal in the world anymore, particularly American retailers start to restock and therefore rough them through the system. I don't think there's any doubt that inflation and things like that have had some impact on this. So we didn't, and we could feel this, so we didn't put more volume on the market, but we didn't see a huge amount of restocking. We do see pretty decent, solid demand in America. So I'm not sitting here thinking there's a real crisis of demand in America. I think the real key for us for the rest of the year is China. And as, as soon as China gets back to normality or gets to a point like we saw in America in 2020, I guess, when retail stores reopened, I think I'm rather hopeful that we will see quite a strong pull. As you know, even though China's not as big a market as America, it's quite important from a pricing point of view. And historically, when diamond prices have been strong, often the Chinese market has been strong, to matter rough prices. So I think it really does depend on where the Chinese market gets to. I think there's quite a lot of hope in China now. And the team was there two weeks ago. I wasn't there, but I've been chatting to them that certainly golden week in May, I think, which is a kind of a time when we yeah. might hope for some more demand. I think Chinese New Year was not bad, but it wasn't stellar. And I think that's partly because people are starting to travel again and they're starting to shop again, but we haven't yet got back to the levels of pre-pandemic. So partly it's dependent on that. And yeah, there are pockets of inventory in parts of the market that are probably slightly in overhang and there are pockets that are not. And so you're seeing an interesting market now where sometimes the smalls are felt to be in short supply and some of the bigger goods are not. Right. And we shouldn't forget that this we see all the time through the cycle all the goods do sell and they don't all sell at the same time so i would be hopeful that if american demand continues to be stable and inflation starts to come down and chinese demand picks up we should be in for a better second half i spoke today about uncertainty in the world and how these things happen that you can't predict i didn't mention the banking crisis again of course and that of course is another risk out there so assuming that all plays out normally and assuming stability returns in the banking industry generally because I think that's good for confidence I would be hopeful that towards May golden week in the second half of the year we have a more mm. epic it feels like there's this sort of rebalancing of the market, you know, that's been going on from COVID that we're still kind of going through those ebbs and flows and finding our place in, yeah, in the market. I think that's a fair comment. And I think, you know, we have short memories in the diamond yeah. industry. We, 2020, it was the end of the world for all of us. And 2021 was so good, we all expected things to continue to grow off that base. But 2021 is probably not a repeatable year. So I think you're right. I think we're settling into what is a new normal. But, you know, the third site's just started. I don't have any reports on it from, from the team. But the second site, we sold a fair amount of volume actually and sold it at, at prices that seem to be taken reasonably well by the market. So, you know, we'll continue to do what we do. We'll be driven by demand. We will look to sell into pockets of demand. And even in those numbers that you see in sites one and two, there are some areas of quite strong demand and some areas of less demand, which is normal in the diamond. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time and your candidness and your, your um, openness to, to speak to us. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks, Evie. It's always nice talking to you. And Thanks, um, we'll keep a close watch on all of our journeys um, as the beers continues to lead the market in many areas. So thank you for everything. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rapport Diamond podcast. For more discussions, news and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on rapport.com, follow Rapport Group on Instagram and follow Rapport on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.